You're listening to Trap One. I'm Mark McManus, and my co-host on this episode is Eric Stadnick. Welcome back, Eric. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Hello. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, so we've both recently turned forty, mm. and to mark this, we're going to talk about Doctor Who's fortieth, specifically the two thousand and three animated adventure, Scream of the Shalker. Mm. So how's forty working out for you? I mean, so far so good. Um, a number of people. Um, when I, because like my Facebook invitation for the party was uh, come celebrate Eric's big round number birthday. Um, and several people took it to me and I was taking, turning 30, which I thought was very flattering. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty nice. I think, yeah. um, I, I don't know about you, I, I find you sort of look in the mirror and I still see myself as I was when I was 25. Um, so whenever I tell somebody that I'm 40, I'm always sort of expecting them to be slightly taken aback. Um, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe even sort of reel a little bit, maybe need, need something to steady themselves on, but, um, but they, they never do. smelling salts to recover. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah no, it's, it's, I say it and people kind of look at me and they're, and they sort of squint and go, I guess, you know, in yeah. their mind, and that's about as far as it goes. I think it's just largely, especially, you know, if you were born in the 70s uh, or even the 60s in sort of a, you know, advanced Western style country with access to adequate nutrition and medicine and things like the aging mm-hmm. process has drastically shifted just during our lifetimes. And so, like, I remember what 40 looked like when I was a kid and it looks very different now. Yeah. Um, I Chris think Evans that... is 38. Yeah. Like, we're just all, that's just how we're going to look until we hit, like, 75 and everything's going to fall off at once. Yeah. I don't know. But. Um, yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, I, um, I I think about that as well. You sort of watch, um, I think I can listen to it on a podcast or something, they're talking about Sean Connery, the way Sean Connery was only sort of in his 30s when he was first Bond, but he, he seems that bit older, and it's that sort of generation as well, they say. Um, you know, we, we're very privileged, but the generation that maybe lived through the war, they... Uh, they had it a lot harder, and they had certainly mm-hmm. in this country the rationing and uh, and that kind of thing as well. So took its toll, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I think for me it's, it's yeah. not so much turning forty; it's it's kind of a reminder of how quickly time is going by as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's kind of a massive cliche, and everybody says that, but like it just seems like five minutes <laughs> to turn twenty uh, and finish university. Um, now I'm forty. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, on that existential bleak note, no, but it, it is is entirely true that the cliche is entirely true that time, probably because our own perceptions of time are factored in terms of like fraction of our life. That mm-hmm. the longer the life, the you know the less impactful one year seems. Um, but I think the I think the way to fight against that is to do as many bonkers things as humanly possible in your time. Yes. So, yeah, have as many careers, live as many places, all those good things. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I guess when you're younger, you, you, your life's more uh, structured and broken up into school years and things like that, mm-hmm. isn't it? So it's, uh, then once you, once you start work, yeah. it, it's just uh, one homogenous, uh, endless amount of time on the train, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> until, the on, until the open grave welcomes yes. you. <laughs> Uh, so do you know which um, Doctor Who luminaries, or luminaries, if you will, you share your birthday with? 
I do know, actually. I know one. I don't know if there's more than one. Um, but the main one is Russell Davis. Yes, I had that. And uh, Jenna Coleman's the other one. Yes, that's her. Yes. I knew there was another one. I couldn't think of it. But yeah, Jenna Coleman, uh, she's 10-ish. She's younger than I am. And RTD's 10-ish years older than I am. So I'm kind of in the middle. I And in many ways, I'm a cross between their two personalities. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no. So that's, that's pretty solid. Uh, well, I've got um, Tony Selby, who played Sabalom Glitz. Sabalom Glitz, uh, indeed. Uh, and Ingrid Oliver. Oh, that's but, a good so, yeah, one. That's, that's a, a better one. one, isn't it? Yeah. Nothing wrong with Sabalom Glitz, of course. No. Ingrid Oliver's. That's, she's a she's a funny lady. She's good. Yeah, yeah, she's great. She, she's at um, the big finish day I'm, I'm attending next month, so I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, excellent. She was at a con I went to once, but I didn't meet her. She, But she was around, and people said she was nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's good that she's embraced it so much. I think she does a lot of big finish stuff now, reprising the role mm-hmm. of Osgood, so that's cool. Uh, so, yeah. as much as we might be feeling a bit old, uh, when the doctor turned <laughs> 40, um, he was starting to look a little bit drawn. Uh... <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the Scream of the Schalke was a pilot for a mooted animated series of Doctor Who because uh, uh, at that point it didn't look like Doctor Who was ever going to come back on the TV. So uh, this uh, animated web series was commissioned with Richard E. Grant cast as the ninth Doctor. Uh, how mm-hmm. did you first come across this story? I first came across Schalke, um, it would have been sometime during the sort of latter phase of my initial engagement with Who, um, because it's not, yeah, because it was sort of essentially immediately retconned out of existence by, like, it it hadn't even aired yet, I think, and they announced the the actual revival of the show, yeah. or hadn't debuted, I should say. Um, and so for this brief moment that I wasn't part of, cause I wasn't a fan at the time, it was going to be like canonical quote unquote, Dr. Who that means nothing, but you know, let's go with it for a moment. Um, and then, and then it never was. And by the time it aired, it was already this sort of weird oddity. And I think it was just sort of thought about that way. And for that reason, I never really sought it out until it was put out on DVD as sort of, uh, well, an oddity or a curio by the classic series range, which was nice. And so, but it does, it is just sort of this alternate road not taken um, that to me, it's interesting. Schalke, especially coming at it, knowing, and I'll say this now, just full disclosure, I know Paul Cornell, I'm friends with Paul Cornell. Paul Cornell has been on my main uh, podcast a couple times. So like all that said, um, he, you know, it, it, it's this weird sort of version where to me rewatching it now and having read the book back in the day, it feels much more like the spirit of the new adventures, um, as opposed to the sort of more family friendly version we got when RTD actually did the show, which is quite interesting. Like Paul took it in a sort of edgier, more adult way, um, which I hadn't really thought about, which is an interesting option, but yeah, so I just encountered it the way probably a lot of people did who hadn't watched it at the time, which was sort of, I came on DVD. It's like, Oh, I'll, I'll watch this weird flash animation thing. And, 
And I mean, it's very well done. It's very high quality, but it is, it is a curio. It is an oddity. Yeah, I, I first came across it on DVD as well. I, when it came out in 2003, I kind of remember reading about it in the Doctor Who magazine. And I was really interested in it, but I just did not have a good enough internet connection to, yeah. to, to stream it. Um, so uh, it was always something I thought, oh, I can't wait till I get better internet or whatever to, to get to watch it. Um, but then I think probably by the time I did, I'd, I'd forgotten about it a little bit and the, the series was back. So it was good when it came out on DVD because it sort of brought it back into the uh, back into the limelight a little bit and, and gave us a chance to watch it. Um, but I think you're right; it's interesting where it falls. It feels like they learnt a lot of the lessons of the TV movie in terms of bringing the series back with a new Doctor. Um, and it's interesting to see the decisions that match what Russell T Davis did with the new series and and where it went in a different direction. Because uh, you've got these two sort mm. of like fan professionals who've probably been thinking and fantasizing about bringing Doctor Who back for years, uh, and uh, yeah, where where they converge and where they differ. Yeah, no, it is it is very interesting to compare it with, <clears throat> for example, Rose, which would be like the closest uh, analogy. Um, how much more uh, steeped in its own and in, the, uh, in its own history of the show, Schalke is. Um, it would be difficult from as much as I enjoy Scream of the Schalke. And, and I, I'll say, again, the novelization is well worth seeking and is a very good read. Um, also by Porco now. But as much as sort of the animation of Schalke is, is enjoyable and fun and interesting, it's difficult for me to imagine it being an actual jumping on point for anyone. Um, I think it was meant as something for fans to be watched online by fans, um, as opposed to Rose, which was meant to be the launch of an actual new era and very consciously thought about itself in those terms. Whereas here, like the master's an android who lives in the TARDIS now. And there's all these jokes to the fact that the doctor is the ninth doctor, which is something that never really was established on screen until I think the tenant era when he said he was the 10th. Um, you know, it, it is very interesting seeing how, how much Shalka requires you to understand basic things about Dr. Who in a way that Rose just does not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah, cause the comparisons are, I think where you've got the character of Alison is a bit like Rose in terms of mm -hmm. she's established with a, a boyfriend and a job um, and stuff that you didn't always get in, in sort of uh, companions, uh, especially not kind of boyfriends yeah. and things like that in, in the old series. Um, and even, uh, well, Rose gets her place of work blown up. Alison gets her, her house blown <laughs> up. Uh, so there's a few sort of interesting yes. uh, yeah, the things where they just end up, um, yeah, like that. Um, but yeah, I think on the, the making of documentary, they talk about the, the master was a, a fairly late addition because... They decided because it was for the 40th anniversary that uh, somebody on high decided there had to be more of a, an element from the show's past in it. Um, I think what was interesting was that Paul Cornell's first idea was there was a, be a hologram of the fifth Doctor in the TARDIS. Um, I could I could see I could see that yeah, yeah. which which would have been in uh, quite a different uh, quite a different direction to take. Um, but yeah, I think, in, like you say, in terms of bringing new 
new viewers on board. I don't think the uh, you don't get a really great moment of the TARDIS is bigger on the inside, really, do you? Which is a- no, you get the you get the joke from uh, the comic relief sergeant. I've forgotten his last name now. Graves grade something like that. Um, the sort of the other the other soldier who's not the major. Um, he gets the sort of very quick joke as they're leaving the TARDIS, having traveled in it, that it's bigger on the inside. But yeah, there's no there's no moment where the doctor sort of explains who he is and what he does to the companion or sort of shows off the tar any of those things. Um, it's all just sort of taken as read that you understand, oh, this is this is what a companion does and this is how the show works and things like that. Um, there's much more time spent sort of on the actual plot mechanics, as it were, um, than there is on sort of establishing the characters. Yeah, so the other thing is, uh, the other direction where it um, is a bit like Series 1 is you've got that slightly damaged Doctor where some events that you mm. you haven't seen uh, you know, immediately prior to this have uh, made them a little bit more sort of aloof and not really looking for a companion, but then gradually accepting the idea that I guess the Doctor needs a companion and, or a friend uh, to... to to experience things with and, and help him out and uh, and things like that. And in some ways, it occurred to me in this that the Richard E. Grant's Doctor does have slightly more humanity than Christopher Eccleston Christopher Eccleston's does initially. Thinking about in roles when um, they think Mickey might have died, um, and it doesn't even cross his mind to sort of tell Rose that or speak to her about it mm-hmm. compared to I think it's in episode three of Scream of the Shalker when um he uh after he's escaped from the black hole and he comes back and he says to Kenneth who's the general oh they need some time together talking about Alison and her, and her boyfriend Joe uh and I just made me think that although in some ways uh this doctor is a bit more sort of um a bit more spiky and uh and aloof he does have that just slightly a bit more of uh, thoughtfulness as well. Yeah, he apologizes a number of times, uh, starting fairly early on, he apologizes, and we see his behavior with um, the old homeless woman who who gets killed in, I guess it's episode two, maybe? I forget. Um, and and it, it is interesting, like the Shalka Doctor, which is what everyone calls him, um, the Grant, Richard E. Grant Doctor, has, you're right, he's very... Um, prickly at moments <clears throat> but it i think it's very qu- clear very quickly that sort of a combination of a facade and him just sort of letting himself he's letting himself be spiky if that makes any sense he's he's sort of not censoring himself because he kind of wants to keep people at a remove um and it, which is which is you're right i think i think eccleston's woundedness is much more an inherent part of who that character is. Whereas the way Cornell sets up the Shulka doctor, you can imagine that within a few stories, he's lost almost all of that because he's lost most of it by the end of this. He even has the conversation with Allison sort of when they're in the middle of, or just having saved the day where he's like, yeah, I kind of don't make sense. I, you know, I say I don't kill people, but then I kill thousands and I do this, and, but I do that. I, I hate the military, but I have many friends in the military, like sort of calling out the sort of contradictions inherent in the Doctor's character. 
um, which really makes you think about um, sort of it's all about balance when you're writing the doctor is which which end of those sort of various sliders essentially yeah. do you put him at um, yeah and it's a nice um, kind of catch all for all the different people that have written it over the years isn't it that uh, uh, <laughs> that, uh, mm-hmm. that that exaggerate different traits or uh, or contradict earlier ones yeah I think it's a really key bit when you hear yeah. the answering message in the TARDIS um yeah. <laughs> which, which yeah. kind of gives you a little insight into what this incarnation was previously and, and presumably would be working towards again if the series had uh, had continued yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and if you haven't if you haven't watched it it's essentially it's him and some woman doing something and he's trying to do the answering machine message and she's distracting him and it sounds it sounds very like much lovers in the middle of some sort of tryst deciding to do an answer. Yeah, the on the um, the info text on the DVD, uh, it tells you what the, the sort of the backstory that they'd worked out was, um, which obviously they don't go into the episode. It's uh, that the Doctor had retired to Gallifrey, fallen in love with the President's daughter, uh, who is, um, I guess it, you can infer, is the is the other person you can hear on the answer machine message. Um, but then Gallifrey is mm. invaded. The Time Lords all retreat into the Matrix. Uh, and the Doctor sort of gambles with her life in some kind of daring plan. It doesn't pay off for once and she's killed. Um, the Master is mortally wounded uh, while helping the Doctor. So that's when he transfers his consciousness into the robot body and, and the Master helps him sort of get over his... Uh, his broken heart, and then it's the Time Lords from within the Matrix that are now guiding the TARDIS to places where they're needed. Uh, which, obviously, you'd never put all that in an episode, uh, in an opening episode, because it's a huge no. kind of uh, kind of amount of continuity and uh, an info dump all in one go. Uh, well, I guess the TV movie... Yeah, they hint. They hint at <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They hint at a lot of those elements. They hint yeah. at all those elements. I should say. We know that there's a woman who died, who was a companion or something. We know that the master essentially died as a human or in in his sort of mortal form during the same thing. <clears throat> and there's a strong implication that the time lords are guiding him from place to place. Um, but yeah, it's all sort of just it's all hinted at and then kept as backstory um even by the end of this you know six part first story we don't really find out much more than the those bare essentials um and clearly they were hoping to sort of unpack it and reveal things over time it is interesting though to think about um he could save someone and he saved the master yeah but but yeah no, and I'm not, I'm honestly not sure, like, all of that backstory feels very much like what you would have, like something that came out of the novels. It all feels very grandiose and sort of overly elaborate, perhaps, and a bit overly dark, um, maybe in some ways, in a way that, like, in a way that the destruction of Gallifrey ended up being something that, uh, you know hung over the show for a long time um i do think this sort of idea of a a dead woman he had gotten killed in an attempt to save something would have become a bit of a problem maybe 
Um, yeah. And I, I don't know. It, it's especially watching it now after, you know, 11 years of new who it's really, it is really striking how much more it feels like something that's a continuation of the mood and the vibe going on in the seventh and eighth doctor novels than it is something that's running on a parallel track to actually the show as it became. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the most striking, the, and it's quite early on, the most striking moment that struck me like that was the very lengthy description about how um, Kim, Allison's friend, who is sort of the, the uh, lava, solidified lava statue, like how she died. And is like the idea that the Shalka made her petrify herself and she was like, slather, described her slathering lava on herself. And, it, and they even say, like, by the end, she had no hands. And it's like, my God, that is grisly. It's tremendously grisly and dark. Um, and, it, I mean, it goes further than I just did. It's quite intense. And it, it's very drawn out when they describe it. Like, you don't see it, obviously. But it is, it's just much, much, much more than the show would ever feel comfortable doing, I think. Um, but it's something the novels would have done in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah, you're completely right. It's the only other sort of corner of Doctor Who storytelling where you could imagine it is, uh, is the novels definitely mm-hmm. yeah even I think Big Finish would uh, would probably draw the line at, at, at such a graphic description as that yeah because they with a few exceptions I think that they had early on maybe Big Finish has tended to try to stay in the same range as where the TV show would have been and being sort of family friendly and accessible um, by and large Whereas this, I'm not saying it's not, but it is definitely pushing that boundary in a significant way, um, which which is an interesting choice. Um, I mean, I like Schalke on the whole. I think it's quite interesting, um, uh, but it is it definitely feels much more like uh, something from the wilderness years. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I did. I think it's a great setup. The idea about these people in this town that have to kind of go around not making any noise kind of, uh, is it, it kind of prefigures the a quiet place or something like that. Mm. Uh, it's quite a creepy idea, isn't it? That even in their own homes, you can't have the TV on too loud. They, 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 they go to the pub, but they just got to sit there quietly. Why is that by the way? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's the Shalka we learn like control through sound and things. Is it that the other sounds would somehow hinder the screams ability to sort of slowly convert them to these gas emitting zombies? Like it's a very, you're right. It's tremendously creepy. And it seems like at first that we're going to find out that the sound, you know, too much sound would disturb them or hurt, but it doesn't. And so I don't know. It's, I, I was sort of like, wait, why are they all quiet? Like, Okay. <laughs> mm. Yeah, because I've started to think then about maybe it's because they don't want to alert the rest of the world to what's going on. But it seemed like the the kind of the mind control of it element was uh, was extending to people even delivering sort of food and supplies to the town because they yeah. just drove to the the outskirts and dropped everything off and drove off again and said that they had without, done everything as normal. Yeah. 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 Without without thinking anything was was strange about it. Uh, yeah, especially if you're like what you're doing is slowly recruiting or converting these people into 
gas emitting zombies, which is your whole shtick, why let them know that anything is happening at all if you don't have to? Because if you didn't have the sort of no no loud noises rule, all that would have been weird about the town is the fact that some people had sore throats. Yeah, and it would have been, and instead it's much more sort of, no, something is definitely happening and it's all weird and don't make noises and we're going to make a woman burn herself to death with lava. It's, yeah, it, I don't, I don't know that that quite pieces together. Yeah, and the doctor wouldn't really have been alerted that there was anything going on if he'd arrived and it had just been a few sore throats, would he? No, exactly. It would have been, it would have been much more sort of, but as it was, it was sort of very stark. I think it helps. In some ways, I think it helped create just sort of the atmosphere and the ambiance of the early episodes, which is important. Um, mm. I think it also just helps make it feel much more like a Pertwee homage, which I think a lot of the story is. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it's not very often that the Doctor arrives on Earth when there's already something that odd going on. It's like sort of invasion of the dinosaurs, isn't it? Um, probably more often he he arrives and then the weird stuff starts. So it's, it's much earlier on in the process um, to arrive where there's a populace who are already kind of acting strangely and, and, and under the influence mm-hmm. is a bit bit more unusual, unless it's on an alien planet where it's been like that for, for some time. Yeah, I think the closest approximation would be something like the android invasion, um, where they where the Doctor thinks he's landed on Earth, but he hasn't. Um, but it is... Yeah, no, it, it, I don't know. It, I mean, it, it works, but it is, uh, it's, it's a, it's something that sort of becomes abandoned, this sort of demand for silence or this fear of making noise. And maybe it was meant to be simply that the Shalka never actually said, don't make noise, but there was just an awareness that something was below the ground. And so the humans sort of naturally stopped making noise. And maybe that's where the metaphor of the, angry landlord with the broomstick comes in but um yeah not sure it quite works yeah because yeah, once the doctor starts making noise in allison and joe's house it does summon two shalka doesn't it who uh, mm-hmm. pop up through the floor yeah and he's one of the great things is they make the way they make use of the animated format um is to is to have monsters that they couldn't really have depicted easily uh in the tv show uh, oh, they, they still sort of, couldn't do that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's definitely a good shout to to do something like that, and, and even to have them moving through lava and that kind of thing, and to mm-hmm. have the the enormous Schalke worm creature, that kind of thing, um, and then uh, and something you, what you would get in the modern series, but not in the old series, is when there's an invasion going on, and you can show scenes from around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like um, something that uh, that the new series probably not influenced by this but you know the direction that they that they both share yeah it's it's definitely like um the you know during the part we air or whatnot you would have like the brigadier saying we have reports coming in from all over or whatever yeah yeah whereas <laughs> here they actually have like the brief scenes where you see you know the little i guess maybe african boy or something who's like the you know the shalka transmitter and all the you know and the orthodox priest and all these sort of other and you get the sense that something is going on around the world, although it's hard to tell at first what it is. Um, and then, yeah, and then it would, it's very much like Christmas Invasion, where you see the news reports from all the all over the globe, people standing on the rooftops. 
Yeah, yeah, you get that sort of, uh, yeah, like you say, army of ghosts and uh, and that kind of thing, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of the Shalka as, like, a villain, as, like, their, like, their raison d'etre and their motivations and whatnot? It's a unique idea. I like the idea that uh, they they turn up wet on planets that are basically just about to wipe themselves out anyway, and then hasten the process by by changing the atmosphere. Um, and it's probably one of the few times in Doctor Who where they acknowledge that alien races would need a different atmosphere to us. Doesn't happen mm-hmm. all that often, does it? You've got sort of Galaxy Four. Uh, it's a Suntaran stratagem. They're trying to change the atmosphere, aren't they? Uh, Suntaran stratagem. Yeah, they're trying to change it. Yeah, um, but yeah, right. It doesn't happen mm, that often. Um, and obviously, the Suntaran stratagem hadn't happened when this was written either. So it was, uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, it's a good good thing to pick up on. I think that uh, the, the classic series didn't very often. Um, but yeah, I think the the idea that it was eighty percent of the planets in the universe have Shalka in them. Um, but the doctor's mm-hmm. never heard of them. Um, I think that maybe seems a little bit too too vast for the doctor to have never ever encountered Wait, them before, or any remnants of or anything like that. You know. Yeah, and it's because they're sort of they they are as the doctor says they are like death essentially, um, and so they every world that they live on is a dead world. But the doctor is exploring things on dead worlds all the time. Um, and 80% is also very high considering they're creatures of like magma and lava and many, many, many planets in the universe uh, don't have rock centers are like gas giants and things. So, you know, maybe it's just exaggeration on the part of the, the prime Shalka, the one who speaks. Um, but it is an interesting, yeah, you're right. These sort of creatures that come along, they sort of, as as she says, they they find the planet that's weak, and then they, um, you know, they sort of turn it against themselves and sort of hasten its own decline. It's an inter- it's a very interesting idea, um, and it allows for an invading alien force to sort of be also a reminder that if you know if the environment weren't already in a bad shape, the Shalka wouldn't have bothered showing up. Yeah, so we mentioned the the master earlier. What did you think of the idea of having him on board? I mean, I think he's portrayed very well by Derek Jacobi. I think Jacobi gives it a lovely touch of class, and you know, he's drawn so much like the Delgado master. It's not even funny. Um, more echoes of sort of the part we are, which is sort of uh, Paul's you know entry point. Um, it is. It's an interesting idea, one that sort of is echoed at various points through the show's history, both before and after this, of sort of the Master and the Doctor together in the, tra- in the TARDIS in some capacity. Um, I, I think it would have been very limiting eventually to have this sort of only on board the TARDIS sort of Master. Um, and I really hope they wouldn't have sort of kept having him be questionable in his motivations. Um, like, and I'm not sure how much we're actually supposed to doubt whether or not this robot master would be as evil as the regular master is. Um, that's, but that said, it's, it's a nice sort of fun bit of, you know, fan service or continuity or whatever to have him living on as a robot. Essentially the idea that 
the doctor couldn't bear the idea of a universe without the master. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't bear thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, and, and the idea of rehabilitating the master as well, like you say, is, um, you get a little bit of in the sea devils, uh, and then in last mm-hmm. of the time Lords. Um, and I think, um, I think it's in, um, Paul Connell's, uh, in, in his email newsletter, which is, which is brilliant. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes, the one where he talks about Scream of the Shalker. I think it's in that he says that Russell T. Davis uh, said he was thinking of Scream of the Shalker in Last of the Time Lords when the Doctor tries to persuade the Master to come with him in the TARDIS. Uh, he knows that stuff about him being the Doctor's responsibility and you know he'll, he'll sort of basically keep him imprisoned in there. And then it kind of ultimately happens with, with Missy in, in Series 10. Uh, yeah. the, the, the sort of 50 years she's in the vault uh, being rehabilitated and then bringing her aboard the TARDIS to to do some maintenance and then uh, ultimately go on a, an ill-fated mission in uh, World Enough and Time. Yeah, time. although in fairness, uh, it's not ill-fated for Missy. No, it's so <laughs> for the Master. Yeah. Missy has been rehabilitated, which is an, which is one of the bolder moves Moffat took. Yeah, um, where she introduced herself as Doctor Who and all those good things. Yeah. It it is your. Yeah, it is sort of, there's, I think the generation of fans who came of age watching Delgado and Pertwee, I don't think they can think about that relationship any other way as, you know, instead of two disparate people. Like, you know, the master is based on Moriarty. Um, And I'm sure with the new Benedict Cumberbatch, Sherlock, there are plenty of like, you know, Sherlock Moriarty shippers and whatever. But that was never the traditional understanding of that relationship. They hated each other. Um, and they were, you know, equal and opposites. Whereas Perry and Delgado had such charm together. And Delgado, as the character playing the master, gave it such charm. You know, even stories like Claws of Access, which is kind of awful in some ways. He gets the joke about putting sticky tape on the windows. It's just great. Um and so you you want to see them together because they seem like the right fit for each other. They seem like a good pair. And so I think, you know, if you came of age in the 80s watching the various doctors go up against Ainley, I don't think you get the same vibe at all about who the master is in relation to the doctor. Um, and if, you know, if your first master doctor was Sim and Tennant, I don't think you get it either. But you would with Capaldi and Missy. So it's like... I think I think RTD took it in a slightly different direction. It had echoes of the past, but didn't really have that same intense bond. Um, but yeah, I think I think a lot of Doctor Who fans just that is how they see the fundamental nature of the Doctor Math relationship. Yeah, the thing I love about Clause of Axos is the Master working with Unit, and it's like a little bit of a what if it was the Master that was exiled and forced to mm-hmm. defend the earth with unit. Um, I, I just think that would have been, uh, uh, that's just it. That story gives a kind of a, a little insight into the, into that. What if, and, uh, that's, that's, uh, I love it for that. If nothing else. Um, and that's where you get the stick tape and the windows and all that kind of stuff, that, that sarcasm towards yeah. the brigadier and, uh, <laughs> and everything else. Yeah. It's when, it's when the power plane's about to go, nuclear power plane's about to explode. Yes, and yeah. like, what do we do? He's like, you know, Stick tape yeah, on the window, the that sort of thing. It's yeah. great. <laughs> the usual precautions, yeah. Um, and it's and it's definitely um, that same sort of 
what if and this is this is not to stereotype or generalize, but it what if instead of like an actual like world conquering villain, the master were kind of just the bitchy old queen we yeah. want to be? <laughs> and that's kind of how Jacoby plays him, which is appropriate in some ways. Um and but it's it's interesting seeing him do the master here as sort of the very posh old world, old school sort of villain. Comparing it to the like even just two minutes we have of him as the master in Utopia, where he's genuinely dead, deadly, like and legitimately a massive danger, like the android just sort of charming. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. In in the big finish stories that that Derek Jacobi's done, he combines those really really well. Um, and if you've heard any of these, I think he's done two two box sets and and. A, I haven't. I just cannot keep up with. Big no, I, 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 yeah, I can only listen to a fraction of it. Um, but I've, I've heard the first one um, of the, the the Warmaster box set and the episode of um, River Songs Diary. Do they call it her box set? Mm. Um, yeah, the diary. Yeah, of the River Song, where she meets uh, an incarnation of the Master in each of the four stories in the box set, uh, and he plays it so most of the time he's very charming and congenial. Um, and then you just, at certain points, the, the the lethalness and the deadliness comes out and the utter ruthlessness. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think he's, he's absolutely superb at it. Um, and in this, I think, a, a great master to go against Richard E. Grant's Doctor because, they, like you say, they should kind of be a bit of a mirror of each other as well. Um, and mm-hmm. whereas, obviously, the, the TV Knights Doctor kind of discarded that sort of uh, traditional Edwardian gentleman kind of style of doctor. Uh, the This really harks back to the earlier doctors, I think, in that sense, the way that the Schalke doctor dresses and his manner. Uh, and like Pert, we used talking about fine wines and uh, kind of opera and stuff like that, isn't he? Uh, it's just... Yeah, but he's also singing cabaret mm. and... Um, whatnot. He's sort of a mishmash of cultural references, which is quite, which is quite funny. Um, yeah, I quite like, I quite like the Richard E. Grant portrayal of the Shulka Doctor and the sort of high-low blend, as it were, he brings to the character. Yeah, he ta- he gets a lot of stick, doesn't he? Um, uh, Russell T. Davis had um, he called the performance lazy, but I, I don't know. I don't, uh, did he really? I didn't yeah, know that. This, um, well, this is something I read in the the Black Archive uh, by John Arnold on, uh, on Scream of the Shark. Apparently, uh, yeah, Russell T. Davis had uh, had said that. Which um, yeah, he's normally pretty complimentary, isn't he? About <laughs> about people. He's not. He's not. Doesn't usually openly criticise anyway. Uh, he doesn't usually just slag off people for no good reason. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily say lazy. I think. I think it may be just very difficult to. Because I'm trying to imagine how an actor would go about creating such an iconic role only through voice, you know, like because it's not it's not like you're playing Spider-Man and you know what Spider-Man looks like and you may be the first person to do this version of Spider-Man, but it's still Spider-Man like the doctor is each doctor. So much of what the doctor is is brought to it by the actor's physicality, by their appearance and things. And Richard Grant was controlling none of that, essentially. Um, although the cartoon is really modeled on him to a large extent, I would say, but I do wonder how much of he just maybe didn't quite find enough 
to do just with his voice to make it, but I don't think lazy yeah. seems harsh. I think he's somebody who said he'd never watched Doctor Who as well, which uh, which would make it difficult, more difficult in those circumstances. I think not to have a bit of a sense of the character um, and, and 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 how it comes mm-hmm. across. Uh, and the, the other quote was, "What?" And but he's he's not British. He's yeah. South African. Um, and I don't know when he moved to Britain, but I think as an adult. So yeah, yeah probably never I think saw. Is he from? I want to say Swaziland. Yeah. Yeah. You actually, I think you're right. It's not even South. It's it's one of the other. Yeah. One of the other former yeah. colonial. <clears throat> yeah. Your grand birthplace. Uh, but yeah, the uh, in Paul Connell's newsletter as well. When he um, he's talking about, it, he says. Um, that day of having the press at the recording of the dialogue, the tension in the air, and Richard E. Grant being distant and uncertain and not seizing the moment. Which, again, mm. I, th- I don't think you get a sense of that listening to it. Um, I feel like he does... You've got the opening episodes where he's, he's sort of quite dry and everything, but then as it goes on, and particularly after he escapes the black hole, because um, we've... Because he has a moment of rebirth. He has a moment where he realizes, I do want to do this. I want to be the doctor again. I want to have a companion. I want to go on adventures. Like, he has that moment. And, yeah, you're right. And he becomes much goofier. It's all the sort of, you know, jokes about Andy Warhol and Nellie Melba and the singing and ah, all that stuff. He he really takes it someplace that he wasn't with the character earlier. And I think, yeah, because just nice before though. that, he's... He's sort of um, remonstrating that because he showed that he cared for Alison, he couldn't just play the part of the, uh, I think he says, detached alien observer. And that now the shall can know his weakness, that he will he will try and save humans and, uh, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, they say it is it's a perfect um, description of it, the moment of rebirth. Um, he, uh, he comes with a really doctory way of escaping the black hole as well. Um, of having a mobile phone, and which is also very novelly, the sort of idea that the phone is connected to the TARDIS and some of the TARDIS yeah. around you. Yeah, and uh, you, you, yeah, sort of create a portal using the uh, using the phone. Um, and afterwards, he said, "Yeah, it seems to be finding some form," um, and does. And after that, it is some some really doctory stuff, really eccentric. Um, actually, it might be before that, but the bit where he gets in the the worm's mouth. Um, and he shouts, "Take me home, big boy! Yeehaw!" And all that. <laughs> yeah, take me home, big boy. Yeah, Which, he's doing yeehaw. Yeah, that is before. Was an ad lib um, as well because it's when he first goes. I can see that. It honestly, I felt like that moment came at the wrong time for the character because of exactly what we were just talking about. But I, th- I think you could read it as the Doctor being full of bravado in a moment yeah. of uncertainty. Yeah, and I like a lot of stuff he does. Like he um, he does that traditional doctor thing, which which all the doctors do, name dropping like crazy, doesn't he? Um, you get that all the way through. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, there's another line I noted down which I really liked when um, he says about why you're invading uh, Lancashire or something like that, and uh, and Prime says they have a higher ambition, and he goes, "What Nottinghamshire too?" Yeah, <laughs> and then. Both counties that I lived yeah. in when I was a kid, so uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I like that line. It was a great line, anyway. But yeah, I like that even more. 
Yeah, it's the the closest. It's not an exact analogy, but the the what that echoed for me like mentally is um, in Terror of the Zygons when Tom Baker says you have to come yeah. on with tentacles. Sometimes <laughs> this idea of being very just dismissive yeah. of the stupid aliens. Um, yeah, it is. What was interesting though about um, I guess what, what I'd say is interesting is sort of about the way the sort of doctor reacts to this new enemy that is vast and huge and at the center of, you know, 8 billion worlds or whatever it is. Um, even though he's decided that they're awful, like they're awful and they're evil, um, he doesn't, at least it doesn't seem to be, he doesn't make any effort to try to do anything about the greater Shalka community, if that makes any sense. It's not like he does send something through the time space wormhole to like disrupt their whatever's and destroy the no he doesn't like they don't get earth but the rest of them stick around it seems yeah it's obviously got a huge population uh that, that yeah can be mobilized to to do this to any other planet mm-hmm. yeah how many other planets out there are were sort of on the brink of environmental collapse or were having a bad day just and a shalker meteorite landed and that was it Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess it could be set up as a bit of a recurring villain. Could be. Yeah. Uh, for that reason, having having established the dominance, uh, they, they could come back. Maybe uh, a bit like Tim Shoy's put them in the, uh, the first episode for a for a rematch later on. Oof, I'd rather uh, the shock any day than Tim Shaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, a bad example. Yeah. So the main character we haven't talked about much yet is Allison. What do you think about yeah. Allison? Yeah, I think that as I said before, there's sort of similarities to Rose in in giving her a bit more, um, bit more of a home life on Earth to to sort of put her in context. But then I suppose it, they, what they don't do in this story is what they did with Rose was to give her sort of an equal equal footing with the Doctor and make her, you know, almost a, an equally important character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like it's, it is the first story of a potential series, so. You, and she does go off with them at the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the idea that, uh, that the Doctor picks the companions because they are something extra and something a bit special compared to most of the humans that you meet. You get that at the start when she's working in the pub. She's the only one that will sort of defy what's going on in the town a little bit and speak up about it. Uh, so you get this, uh, there's the beginnings there, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think, but I think it's just the beginnings. I think, unfortunately, to some extent, she's defined by her relationships with men, um, which is not great. Um, it is a very male-heavy cast. Um, there's her, there's the old lady who gets killed, and there's, I guess you could say, the Shalka queen figure is female. Um, it's played by Omen, although it's not, you know, something that you would say, oh, that's a female Shaka. There doesn't seem to be male or female Shakas. Um, no, she's the only one that speaks as well. She's the only one that speaks, yeah. But, they, I mean, they all look yeah. identical physically. Um, mm. And so that's, it's a bit, sort of, it does feel a bit very classic who in that sense. Like, I think if Paul were doing this now, he would consciously have more female characters among, like, either the, you know, the townspeople or, you know, the the military or something, you know, stuff like that. 
some of these small characters you see for one moment could be there's no reason the caretaker at the factory isn't a woman right stuff like that um and i i think allison is kind of written as in a way generic companion there's something about her she's tough and she's smart but it's like we don't really see her being that tough or that smart and all we really know about her is that she dropped out of school to be with Joe in this horrible little town that she hates. And also, he's seemingly a good deal. You think Joe is much older than her, maybe? I'm not sure. I can't quite tell. Yeah, I guess if... I don't know. We don't get a sense of how long she's lived in this town, do we? But she's not long dropped out of university to go and work in, in a bar in this town, but he's a qualified GP. Yeah, exactly. He'd have been studying for sort of seven years um, at that point. So, yeah, I guess you, you, you're probably right there. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, but, yeah, you're right about the relationships as well because uh, a boss is male. Mm-hmm. The only other client in the in the pub who's a regular is a male. Um, yeah. yeah. Our two unit stand-ins are both guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very much old school Doctor Who in that essentially you'll get um, the companion will be a woman and then maybe like one guest star will be a woman. And that was kind of how it worked. Um, which, you know, I'd probably give it time to some extent, but it is it is interesting seeing that, which is now, this is, you know, 16 years on and it feels like a lot of changes happened. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you've got... Um... Even a unit, obviously, it's uh, you got high ranking. Uh, you've got Kate Stewart, uh, and mm-hmm. before that, it was the sort of commanding officer in turn left was female as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, yeah, so that's stronger. Uh, and and like com- the female companions had female relatives, all of them. Mm. Like it was, it was never just sort of you know the one. Um, but I think she's played well by. Uh, Sophie Okonedo, um, yeah, it's quite good. Um, I just yeah, I you, don't know that there's quite a lot there. I think we would have had to have done a lot of work to flesh that character out later. Yeah, because she she won an Oscar not long after this. She was nominated. She didn't win. Oh, right, she was nominated, right? Yes. Uh, and Richard E. Grant's been nominated for an Oscar. Yes, as well, hasn't he? Just this past show. year. Just this past yeah. year. Yeah, no, it's a very, I mean, it's a, you know, Richard E. Grant, you have Sofia Canedo, you have Jacoby, of course, and you have in the little itty-bitty role, you have David Tennant. So yes, a, I can mention that, yeah. It's quite a heavy-hitting uh, voice cast. Like, I, this wasn't, I think some people find out about Schalke and think it's some sort of, like, thing the BBC did just with, like, no money and no, like, no, they really tried. Like, they wanted to do this right, BBCI. BBC Interactive, whatever it is, they they put some money and effort behind this, and it shows. Um, it just ended up because of its timing and the quirk of history, ending up being immediately irrelevant and not relevant too strong. Immediately surplus to purposes. I'll put it that way. Yeah, what what I hadn't realized I watched the documentary was that it actually helped the series come back. The research that they did on who owned the rights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, By putting those online, and then that sort of sparked a bit of a discussion at the BBC um, that it that it helped to pave the way for the for the actual new TV series. I hadn't I hadn't realised any of that. It seemed like they were two totally separate things, but um, it was all part of the way that thing things were going at that time at the uh, at the BBC. Yeah, 
That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I, I, I hadn't thought about that. I, I saw, I remember on the documentary, but I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. That it would, mm, you know, mm, yeah. No, but I like, I like it on the whole. It, do you think the 15 minute works? Like the pacing? Uh, I suppose, I suppose it would online. I think it's, uh, well, I mean, especially in 2003, had I had good enough Wi-Fi, well, not Wi-Fi, uh, had I had a good enough <laughs> internet connection to watch it, um, I would have been sat, you know, at a desktop computer probably with my headphones on um, mm-hmm. compared to, you know, sitting in your living room watching it on TV is a bit more sort of, a bit more sort of comfortable, isn't it? So it's probably, probably for an online thing, 15 minutes is, I mean, when you watch it on DVD, um, as is, is probably the main way to watch it now. You've got the titles crashing in every 15 minutes <laughs> uh, and having to sort of skip through them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess it could have been, uh, could have had the option for the uh, for a feature-length version on the DVD somewhere. What do you think of the yeah, theme I, tune? It's, uh, it's a bit like Dimensions in Time, isn't it? It's kind of a dance music remix. I, do, I, I, I don't care for it. Uh, it's, it's a bit too busy for my taste. Um, it's the only part of Shock I really don't like is is actually the theme mix. Um, I like the I like the titles and sort of the <clears throat> it's very Pertwee the titles or first four years of Pertwee I should say pre time tunnel um, and has the 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 name logo that was used at the time. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like the the for me the pacing doesn't really work, not because I think you would want longer episodes or I th- I just don't know how you. How to put it? It feels like you're just constantly being thrown from plot point to plot point, which means there isn't a lot of time for those moments where the story can breathe, um, and and that kind of really, you, I don't know. I felt like I was being forced through it. I think the novel, which expands and you know at two hundred plus pages, obviously has a lot more content, really takes advantage of it. Like the good stuff in the script for the Shalka, but doesn't doesn't have to hit those sort of like, it's been 14 minutes. We need another cliffhanger, you know? Yeah. It's, it's probably the only Paul Cornell book I don't own. Um, I need to, uh, need to remedy that. I'm a terrible fan. I need to, uh, I need to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good one. It's definitely a good one. When I had the book club podcast, it was one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the episode of the book club I didn't listen to cause I haven't got that one. So, uh, <laughs> Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and had, had the series continued, um, the, the next story would have been Blood of the Robots, which um, it got as far as, I think, a, a script for episode one and a, and, a, and a breakdown of what would happen in each episode. Uh, and, again, this is in the in John Alder's Black Archive. Um, and that would have been an interesting little story. It's uh, arrived on a, a planet which is a junkyard for retired robots, but they've gained sentience. Uh, but the, the humans on the, the planet nearby who sort of sent all the robots there now need that land for uh, colonizing, basically, because they've run out of space. Uh, so it's this uh, the Doctor trying to sort of save these robots from just being crushed and turned into terraforming machines, uh, given that they've, they've gained sentience. And there's, a, there's a lot of big master stuff in there, which uh, I think probably a lot of the writers would have seized on how interesting it is to have the master in the state that he's in, in, in the robot body with certain limitations. Like he, uh, I think in that story it says he can't take off 
in the TARDIS on his own um, and can't leave the TARDIS. So it's, uh, it went into a bit more of his, his limitations and programming and the temptations that he faces. Uh, and the short story that was commissioned for the BBC Cult website as well, which was called Feast of the Stones. Feast of the Stones, by Kevin yes. Scott, yeah. Which is sort of... Kevin Scott and Mark Wright. Yeah, sort of uh, psychic vampire sort of vibe. Yeah, it seems like it was uh, it was something they were doing where they were doing vampire stories. Um, so they, uh, they, they did a Schalke Doctor one. Uh, and again, it, it hinges very much on the on the master, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I feel like that's something a lot of the writers would have picked up on it if it continued. Yeah, and to the point where I worry that Allison never would have been fully developed because people would have been so obsessed with writing for the master. Yeah. I think I think that just would have been natural for a lot of the fans, and that's a shame. But mm-hmm. it maybe shows why you should never... Like, I know people who didn't care for season 10 because they felt like Bill just got sidelined completely in favor of Missy. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you'd want uh, in that situation you'd want it a bit more like Nardole, wouldn't you? For the the robot master to be not front and center. Yeah. But a little bit of comic relief, a little bit of exposition, but yeah, kind of uh not uh, not one of the main two, I suppose. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about the comparisons with Nardole, but uh then you've got someone who's been uh, replaced with a robotic body. Serving aboard the TARDIS. Mm, yeah. Uh, but just, yeah, not somebody with the significance to the Doctor's past, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But I like it. I like Shaka. I think it's good. It's fun. It's it's an interesting sort of, you know, mirror dimension or something take on what mm. Doctor Who could have been in, you know, the mid-2000s. Um, I think fundamentally, as much as I like Shaka, I think I'm happier with what RTD did. Which yeah, definitely. Yeah, is no, is no diminishment to Schalke, but I just think, I think it was a very smart idea to really restart the show as a new thing that was the same thing, but as opposed mm. to continue the show. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. Far rather have the uh, the live action series that we've got. Um, I, I I don't know if the the online one would have found the audience that would have. Certainly not continued it for eleven years. I wouldn't have thought it's. Uh, it's. I mean, it's not something the BBC have really continued to do much with either. So, uh, it would have been a bit of an oddity if it uh, if it had carried on. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, no, really enjoyable isn't it? and a good opportunity to revisit it for this as well because I don't think I've watched it since the since the DVD was released. Yeah, I hadn't either. Good, so. uh, yeah. Cool. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me today thank you very much for having me to talk about uh, something that was also a I don't know 40 40 something 40 I'm 40 it was 40th anniversary it's all there just you you do the joke in your head yeah (laughs) Uh, and anything you'd like to plug you've got a number of podcasts uh, sure. So I'll plug, uh, I'll plug two of the four that I currently host. Um, one is, uh, maybe of lesser interest. It's called the writer's room column, the outer limits. It's a show where my co-host Kyle Anderson and I, uh, look at a classic genre TV through the st- prism of the writers who read the stories. 
we did all of classic Doctor Who, and that's available. And um, we've now moved on to the American sci-fi TV show, The Outer Limits. Uh, and we're about halfway through our first year on that. So you can find that. <clears throat> Doctor, like I said, it's The Writer's Room. Um, you'll find it there. Um, but I also just started a podcast called Doctor Who The Real McCoy, or just The Real McCoy, um, where uh, my co-host Adam Clegg and I talk about the seventh Doctor and his era. And the plan is to do all of the televised stories, plus some of the um, extra material from the wilderness years. So we're doing some audio and some novels and things to try to get our handle on the certainly the most complicated of the classic series doctors, I would say. Yeah, my, one of my favorites as well. That's where I started watching. So uh, really enjoying the podcast so far. Hoping you're not going to be Thank too you. harsh on Silver Nemesis. It's terrible, so I don't know how harsh we'll be, but it is very bad. It's extremely bad. No, it isn't. Soon all things will be mine, Mark. Soon all things will be mine. <laughs> and they surely loads. will, sweetheart. It's terrible. Loads of other classic lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classic in the scare quotes. Social workers. Let's go. Oh, God. <laughs> It's so bad. I'm already dreading it. We're months away from having to watch it. I'm already dreading it. I feel sick I, to my stomach. I've just got fond childhood memories of it, I think. That's uh, that's my yeah. excuse anyway. Yeah, keep them there. Yeah. Childhood memories. <laughs> I might have to skip that episode. I'll see. <laughs> uh, so just before we go, something I wanted to quickly mention. Uh, there's a brilliant museum in Allendale in Northumberland. Uh, it's about an hour's drive from where I live called the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi, uh, run by Neil Cole. They've got loads of brilliant movie and TV science fiction costumes and props, but it's primarily a Doctor Who museum uh, with stuff from each of the 20th century Doctor's eras. Um, it's a brilliant place to visit if you're in the north of England. Um, and I did a podcast with Neil about it a couple of months ago, which I'll put a link in the show notes to. Um, as well as uh, Eric's podcasts. He's built a full-size replica Dalek with the help of local school children, which sits outside the museum in a little shed. Uh, but the council are making reply for retrospective planning permission uh, for this shed. So I'll also put a link in the show notes to this if you would consider taking a few minutes to make a comment in support of the application before the 6th of June uh, so that the Dalek isn't homeless. That would be great. How big is this shed? Um, it just fits a Dalek in and no more. It's very petty. It, that's tremendously petty. Yeah. Um, and it has uh, brought a lot of visitors into this tiny town, uh, which is a very beautiful town, but it's, it's bringing people in who then go and eat in the, uh, in the cafes and stuff there. Uh, so, yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very petty kind of jobs with thing that's going on but uh, I think he's already had quite a good response but if we can get as many Doctor Who fans um, commenting on that as, as possible uh, that would be really great for him um, and it's uh, yeah just a, a brilliant museum if, uh, if anybody hasn't seen it next week I'll be talking to Chris McKeon about Terror of the Autons so please join us then uh, thanks for joining me Eric thank you so much Mark and thanks for listening at home goodbye bye <laughs>